American Public Media and the Smithsonian's National Museum of American History. This is an APM Reports documentary, Order 9066, Fighting for Freedom. The effect of an executive order issued by the President is to allow the Secretary of War to remove not only Japanese aliens, but Japanese who are American citizens from strategic areas on the West Coast. Early in World War II, President Franklin D. Roosevelt signed an order that forced more than 100,000 people of Japanese ancestry into prison camps. From behind barbed wire, thousands of men enlisted in the Army. Everybody was going to fight the war, and I wanted to be a part of it. But others said no. If the government does you wrong, you should protest. Some took their resistance to court and to jail. I just told myself, this is something I have to do. Coming up, Order 9066, Fighting for Freedom, from APM Reports. First, this news. There weren't any roads to speak of. It was just dirt, sand, sagebrush, that's all it was. And they had these black tar-papered barracks spotted all over the place, and that's it. That was our home, and uh, it looked desolate, and it looked dusty to me. In 1942, Frank Kikuchi and his family were living behind barbed wire at Manzanar, a prison camp in the California desert. At the beginning of World War II, the United States government forced nearly 120,000 Japanese Americans into 10 camps like Manzanar. Government intelligence said the Japanese Americans didn't pose a threat to national security, but the Roosevelt administration went ahead with the camps anyway. From American Public Media and the Smithsonian's National Museum of American History, this is Order 9066 documentary about the incarceration of Japanese Americans during World War II. This is part two, Fighting for Freedom. I wanted to fight for the United States, the same as my classmates. Whether I lived or not didn't make any difference. Everybody was going to fight the war and I wanted to be a part of it. Thousands of Japanese-American men from the camps signed up to fight in the war, but thousands of others were reluctant. Some even said no. How can I go and fight for democracy when I'm in a concentration camp? Today, we'll hear from some of the Japanese-Americans who fought in Europe and the Pacific for their country and for their relatives in the prison camps back home. And we'll hear from some of the Japanese-Americans who protested their imprisonment and resisted the pressure to prove their patriotism. Saab Shimono and his family were taken from their home in Sacramento to a camp in northeastern California in 1942. He tells our story. It was World War II. More than 4,000 Japanese-American volunteers arrived at a place called Camp Shelby, an Army training camp in Mississippi. The War Department had created a new all-Japanese-American fighting force, the 442 Regimental Combat Team. Some of this select group is from Hawaii. The rest are from the mainland. Many of them volunteered to fight when they were behind the barbed wire enclosures of relocation centers where they had been moved in 1942, soon after the outbreak of war. At the beginning of World War II, Japanese Americans, not already in the military, were declared ineligible for service. Citizens were classified as 4C, enemy aliens. The government said it doubted their loyalty. But as the war dragged on, the need for manpower grew urgent. In early 1943, President Franklin D. Roosevelt announced the formation of the 442 and called for volunteers. When recruiting began, a 21-year-old named Tosh Yasutake was incarcerated at the Minidoka camp in Idaho. At first, Tosh was happy about the call for volunteers. Before, we were not. Even if we wanted to go, we couldn't go. So now, at least we were given a chance to go into the Army. But then he got to thinking. The more I thought of it, the more upset I got. And I thought that they ought to just assimilate us and not have a segregated unit. Tosh held out. He hoped the Army would change its mind. But he also thought about his father, 
who had been arrested after Pearl Harbor as an enemy alien. Tosh's dad was in the government prison camp in New Mexico. Finally, in desperation, I, the last day I decided that maybe if I did volunteer, they might help my dad get released a little earlier. So I did volunteer. At first, most of the volunteers for the 442 combat team came from Hawaii. There were stories in the press in Hawaii of men who were turned away in tears. They were weeping because they were not allowed to volunteer for medical reasons or age or what have you. Jim McNaughton is a retired military historian at the Army Center of Military History. He's written extensively about the Japanese-American soldiers in World War II. McNaughton says the Army hoped to recruit a lot of men from the 10 incarceration camps. After all, there were 120,000 people of Japanese ancestry in those camps. Most were American citizens. It was very controversial in the camps, as you can well imagine. And uh, they had a much lower turnout than the War Department had hoped for. Rudy Tokiwa was living behind barbed wire at the post-incarceration camp in Arizona. He went to a meeting where men debated the idea of volunteering. In fact, for quite a while in the meeting, everybody was saying, ah, the hell, why in the hell should we go out fart for a damn country that locks us up? But Rudy saw it differently. If none of us volunteers, that's going to give Roosevelt all the ammunition he needs. He can say that we are more loyal to Japan than the United States. As it turned out, all the men in that meeting volunteered. As a result of their training at Camp Shelby, Mississippi, if they ever have occasion to fight in jungles, they'll be ready for it. At Camp Shelby, recruits from Hawaii outnumbered mainland boys almost 10 to 1. Americans of Japanese ancestry in Hawaii were never held in prison camps like they were stateside. Their labor was crucial on the islands. Meanwhile, a bunch of guys were already in uniform in the Hawaiian National Guard. But after Japan attacked the United States, the military took their guns away. They were told that they were not eligible for duty, and yet they still showed up to try and clean up all the runways and all the debris um, after the bombing of Pearl Harbor. Jennifer Jones is chair and curator of the Division of Armed Forces History at the National Museum of American History. The Hawaiians and the mainlanders didn't always get along. Camp Shelby, you know, was often the first time that the Hawaii volunteers or folks that were coming in out of the Hawaiian regiments were meeting up with mainland Japanese Americans, and they would fight. The Hawaiian guys were described as more rowdy and happy-go-lucky than their mainland counterparts. They also loved to gamble, playing cards and shooting dice. Since their families were not incarcerated, the Hawaiians got money from home. Lawson Sakai was a college student when the call for volunteers went out. Lawson was originally from California. He says the mainland boys with families in camp had to squeak by on their army pay. By the time you pay your you know, laundry bill and this and that, you have maybe 15 or 20 bucks left, and you go down the row of huts and somebody's shooting craps in the room. Okay, put the money down and bang, you're out of there, broke. <laughs> so for the rest of the month, you know, you can't do anything. The boys from Hawaii were loaded with money. The Hawaiian boys gave the combat team a motto, go for broke. It's a gambler's term. It means shoot the work, go all out, do or die. The late U.S. Senator Daniel Inouye was one of those Hawaiian boys. He told an interviewer that he and his colleagues were horrified when they first learned their training camp was in Mississippi. After all, the only thing we knew about Mississippi as young men was that Mississippi was a state where they lynched people, that they didn't like colored people, and we were colored. But Inoa says the Japanese-Americans were generally welcomed by the white folks in Mississippi. Something strange happened the first month we were there. We received a letter which was read by every company commander to the assembled company, and the letter was from the governor of the state of Mississippi. It went something like, Welcome to Mississippi. 
While you are here, you will be considered to be white. Still, some of the soldiers at Camp Shelby resented Mississippi's Jim Crow segregation. As Japanese Americans, they knew only too well what it was like to be second-class citizens. One night, Rudy Tokiwa and his training buddies had been out drinking in a nearby town. They were about to climb aboard a local bus with a black soldier who was also in uniform, but the soldier was heading to the back door of the bus. I say, hey, Mac, where are you going? He says, well, the blacks all get in from the back. Well, I says, hey, we can walk to the front. You sure as hell could walk to the front door. So we start pushing him through the front door. And so the bus driver says, the black man either goes through the back door for the blacks or this bus does not move. Oh, we solved that problem real good. We picked the bus driver, we threw him out, and we took the bus back to camp. Rudy and the other trainees spent a night in the stockade, but no charges were filed against them. The tense relations between the Hawaiians and the mainlanders eased after a trip to a small town in Arkansas. Daniel Inoue says men from Camp Shelby were invited to a social event by local Japanese Americans in the town of Roar. I think the whole battalion went there. Each company sent, oh, about 15 men or so. And by coincidence, when we lined up, we're all from Hawaii. Not a single mainlander. The Hawaiians brought the ukuleles and their guitars. They looked forward to meeting some girls. As the troop trucks turned a corner, Inoue saw guard towers rising from the land. He thought it was just some military camp they were passing by. But no, we came up to this camp and stopped. High barbed wire fences and with men there with machine guns and greeting us at the camp uh, at the gate were men in uniform with rifles and bayonets. And I thought, what in the world is happening? Then we look into the camp, and there they were. Japanese-American civilians, prisoners in their own country. The Hawaiians knew about the camps in the abstract, but most had never seen one. It was the first for Inoue. He said the visit was sobering. And when we left, the atmosphere was totally different because when we arrived, we were all singing and playing ukuleles and having a great time. And when we left, it was absolute silence all the way to Mississippi. And I can imagine what was going through their minds. And I think almost all of us must have asked ourselves, would we have volunteered? Before the visit to the incarceration camp in Arkansas, Inoue couldn't understand why the Nisei from the mainland seemed so reserved and serious. Now he understood. Many of those guys had families being held prisoners in a camp. New bonds started to grow between the islanders and the stateside troops. These bonds grew deeper in combat. In the spring of 1944, Allied troops had been dug in on the Italian coast at Anzio for months. It was part of a massive push to capture Rome and defeat Italy. The fighting at Anzio was fierce. Much of it happened at night. At times, the bombs and artillery shells seemed relentless. Right above us, the sky has suddenly become as bright as day. The German flares are burning, hanging almost motionless overhead in the night sky. Every tree, every house seems clearly lit up, and our old flag is getting furious and fierce. Down in the foxholes were Allied soldiers from several nations. They included men from the all-Japanese-American 100th Infantry Battalion. They had also trained at Camp Shelby. Japanese Americans were fighting our battle and fighting it so hard and so well, their entire outfit won a unit citation from President Roosevelt. That is the famed 100th Japanese American Infantry Battalion in Italy. Major Casper Clough was one of the battalion's commanders. 
I found these men and officers to be first-class fighters in every respect. The records show that men of the 100th Battalion have won nine distinguished service crosses, 44 silver stars, 31 bronze stars, and three Legion of Merit medals. This stacks up well with any battalion in the Army. The 100th became known as the Purple Heart Battalion. Its troops pursued the enemy so aggressively they took a lot of casualties. They were also chosen for some of the toughest missions. The men were often physically smaller than the white G.I.s, but they carried the same heavy packs and weapons. German soldiers coined an admiring name for them, Little Iron Men. In spring 1944, freshly minted soldiers of the 442 joined their Japanese-American comrades from the battle-hardened 100th Infantry Battalion in Italy. They would fight together for the balance of the war. In autumn, the troops engaged in one battle that became famous back home. The 442nd Combat Team, composed of American citizens of Japanese ancestry, moves up to rescue the lost battalion of World War II. Here, over tough terrain in the Vosges forests of France, they advance in the face of strong enemy resistance. The action took place in mountains near the border of France and Germany. An army unit from Texas got too far out in front of its supply lines. German troops cut them off and surrounded them. The enemy poured on machine gun and artillery fire. The Texans became known as the Lost Battalion. They weren't lost. They were just trapped. Nobody could get to them. Lawson Sakai was a machine gunner in the 442. The Texans had been cut off for days. Their supplies were running out. The weather was terrible. It was raining. You couldn't get equipment by jeep or truck. Everything had to be hand-carried. We used everybody, cooks, uh, truck drivers, anybody that was able would haul ammunition, water, and some food. Day after day, the Japanese-American soldiers pressed forward through thick forests towards their trapped comrades. German artillery hurtled from the sky. The men were constantly digging foxholes. The shells often exploded in the trees above them. Trees would burst, jagged, you know, branches of all shapes and sizes come flying down. Just as many boys were wounded or killed by tree shrapnel as metal shrapnel from the artillery. It was brutal. After six days of intense combat, the Japanese-American combat team broke through and saved 211 men in the lost battalion. But they took tremendous casualties. Historian Jennifer Jones. They went in to areas and were sent in where no other regular regiments would go. And they were sent in because they were expendable. Men in the 442 believed that ongoing racism in the Army meant that they got used as cannon fodder. But the War Department also used them to boost morale on the home front. The Yanks of the Lost Battalion, lost no longer, are bound for the rear. Ahead for every man is a well-deserved breathing spell from the long, bitter battle of the Western Front. And what was this newsreel's final assessment of the 442? Japanese by parentage, Americans in war. Most Japanese Americans in World War II served in Europe. The U.S. Navy never let them in, and that included the Marines. So for most, fighting in the Pacific was out. But a select group of American-born Japanese servicemen played a decisive role in the Pacific theater. In the year before the Japanese Navy attacked the U.S. Navy at Pearl Harbor, Hawaii, Military historian Jim McNaughton. The leaders of the Army intelligence realized that war seemed likely, and that in the event we went to war with Japan, the U.S. Army would need people who could read and speak the Japanese language. So the Military Intelligence Service was formed. 
MIS linguists translated captured documents and interrogated Japanese prisoners of war. Many of the linguists were born in the U.S., but had been sent by their family to Japan for schooling. In the MIS, they got trained to interpret military communications and commands. Most of the Japanese soldiers were farm boys. These were not highly educated men, so it was important to have Nisei, who could speak everyday colloquial vernacular Japanese, to question them. The Japanese soldier were never told that there were going to be a POW. You either give your life up, you don't give up at all. Paul Benai of Los Angeles was an MIS linguist. He served in New Guinea and other parts of the Pacific. So when we talked to them and gave them a cigarette and, and, and treat them right, and we asked them about their unit and what they were doing and what the information was readily given to us. They never were told as an American soldier that if you're captured, you give them your name, rank, and serial number, and that's all. Some MIS linguists took part in exceptionally risky operations on the front lines. They always had white soldiers by their side. Moving around on the front lines of combat is dangerous for anybody, but it's especially dangerous if your face looks like the face of the enemy. We had maybe three or four bodyguards. MIS linguist Herbert Miyazaki. Because in the event that a skirmish takes place, the Japanese come in and uh, we go after them and we capture them. Now, our own people can mistake us for the enemy. Government propaganda described how incarcerated Japanese Americans supported the war effort. The so-called evacuees made camouflage netting and raised plants that could help meet the military's need for rubber. They grew much of their own food so as not to cut into the ration domestic supply. The evacuees cooperated wholeheartedly. The many loyal among them felt that this was a sacrifice they could make in behalf of America's war effort. I think the government realized that they couldn't keep these people incarcerated forever. Historian Jennifer Jones says the PR and propaganda was meant for the domestic audience. To let people know, you know, it's safe to let them back into um, the areas of the United States that we've removed them from and that um, they were also a vital workforce. This was very, very important for establishing the public perception of Japanese Americans as Americans, not hyphenated Americans. McNaughton says the overall battlefield achievements of the Japanese American soldiers had a significant impact on the well-being of their relatives back home in the incarceration camps. Some 33,000 Japanese American men served in World War II. 800 died and thousands were injured. Hundreds of Japanese American women served as nurses or in the Women's Army Corps. And the 100th and the 442 were among the most decorated outfits in the war. proud members of the 442nd Infantry Regiment, mostly American-born Japanese, swings down Constitution Avenue in Washington for another ceremony in their honor. There are 3,600 Purple Hearts in this outfit, earned in the bitter battles of Salerno and Anzio. In the 1946 ceremony on the Ellipse in Washington, President Harry S. Truman awarded the 442 its 7th Presidential Unit Citation. As the combat team presented its colors, Truman draped a ribbon over the staff bearing the regimental flag. You fought not only the enemy, but you fought prejudice, and you've won. Keep up that fight, and we'll continue to win. The prejudice that people of Japanese ancestry fought during World War II, both on the battlefield and as prisoners in American incarceration camps, took a heavy toll. The question of whether they should spill their blood to show they were loyal remained unsettled for many, including the writer Isaya Yamamoto. Her family was imprisoned at Poston in Arizona. Her younger brother, Johnny, volunteered for the 442 and was killed in Italy. He was 19. We are repeatedly told that if it weren't for the sacrifices of the 442nd, that 
we wouldn't have been allowed to go back to California as soon as we were, but what was done to us was wrong in the first place. I don't see that they should have had to do that to prove anything. Many Japanese Americans living behind barbed wire came up with ways to fight for their rights in camp, and they resisted mounting pressures to prove they were patriotic. Their actions were sometimes deeply controversial. You're listening to Order 9066, a three-part documentary series from APM Reports and the Smithsonian's National Museum of American History. This is part two, Fighting for Freedom. We'll take a short break, and when we return, Japanese Americans fight back against the government. You can hear this entire documentary series at our website, apmreports.org. While you're there, you can see photos of objects that listeners have sent in that show their connection to the incarceration. We also have links to in-depth resources, including the Smithsonian's online exhibition, Writing a Wrong. Support for Order 9066 comes from the Terasaki Family Foundation, the Henry R. Luce Foundation, the Wallace Alexander Grobody Foundation, the Ishiyama Family Foundation, and Penelope Shala. More in a moment. This is APM, American Public Media. Mitsu Koshiyama was alone when a federal marshal came to arrest him. He'd gotten a draft notice from the Selective Service, but he refused to report for his physical. I said, how, how can I go? I don't think it's uh, right. Mitz was 19 years old. He was living in a barrack behind barbed wire at Heart Mountain Incarceration Camp in Wyoming. Mitz and his family were forced to share two small rooms. I said, Gee, how can I go and fight for democracy? When I'm in a concentration camp, my family and friends are in the concentration camp, denied every constitutional rights. Mitt's mother was working in the mess hall the day he was taken to jail. His younger sisters were in the camp school. He hadn't told anyone but his older brother that he was going to resist the draft. Mitt's never had a chance to say goodbye. I was by myself, but I just told myself, this is something I have to do. If the government does you wrong, you should protest. When 120,000 people of Japanese ancestry were forced into incarceration camps during World War II, only four people fought back by challenging the order in court. Four. At first, everybody else basically did what the government told them to do, but not for long. There was all sorts of resistance in the camps. This is historian Greg Robinson. There were riots in Santa Anita when the government tried to ban hot plates that mothers had to give, you know, milk to their kids. And there was resistance by inmates when the government tried to ban a meeting where people were speaking Japanese. Japanese Americans provided most of the labor in the 10 incarceration camps. They reported to white supervisors and got paid little. Eric Muller is a legal scholar and historian. He says incarcerees protested poor treatment, delayed pay, long hours, and many other problems in camp. Some of it was very explosive and in-your-face, like, you know, masses of people rioting and complaining and chanting. And some of it was much more mundane, like work slowdowns, work stoppages, labor strikes. Not everyone in camp supported these protests. In fact, historian Ellis Yang says there were sharp, sometimes violent, conflicts between different segments of the Japanese-American population. Do you respond to oppression by cooperating, by proving your patriotism, or do you respond by protesting? The Japanese-American Citizens League, or JACL, believed in cooperating. The JACL was founded in 1929 by members of the Nisei generation, Japanese Americans born in the U.S. All of them were American citizens. The JACL became the main intermediary between the U.S. government and Japanese Americans during World War II. But Greg Robinson says many incarcerees disliked the JACL. Indeed, 
the Japanese American Citizens League, which had supported mass removal as a temporary war strategy and to show their patriotism was hunted within the camps, uh, Japanese American Citizens League activists were actually beaten up and threatened. Opponents of the JACL suspected there were informants for camp authorities and the government. There was a special label for informants, Inu, Japanese for dog. In the fall of 1942, actions by the JACL helped spark a riot at Manzanar in California. After Pearl Harbor, Japanese Americans were banned from military service. Eric Muller. At a conference in Salt Lake City, the JACL leaders gathered and announced that they wanted Japanese Americans to be able to resume serving in the army uh, and, in fact, go off and spill their blood on battlefields to prove how genuinely true American uh, all of the Japanese Americans were. Many Japanese Americans supported that idea, but others were appalled. When a JACL representative, Fred Tayama, returned to Manzanar from the conference, he was savagely beaten by masked men, all fellow prisoners in camp. Manzanar authorities arrested a man they suspected of taking part in the beating. A riot ensued. Military police were called in. They shot dead two Japanese Americans in the crowd. The man arrested was an organizer named Harry Ueno. Harry Ueno was a kitchen worker who organized a kitchen workers association to protest what he thought of as theft and uh, corruption among the administration and to protest uh, some of the working conditions. Harry was 35 years old and had three children. He also had an alibi for the night Fred Tayama was beaten. But Harry had become a problem for camp administrators. The night of the beating, Harry was handcuffed and driven out of camp by the chief of police and a camp administrator, Ned Campbell. Harry had once accused Campbell of stealing sugar and meat to sell on the black market. Now he was riding in the back seat of Campbell's car. Harry asked that his captors tell his family where they were taking him. Campbell turned around and said, uh, nobody gonna know where we're gonna take you and uh, you will never come back to the camp anymore. This is Harry Ueno. So I, I told him, maybe you're gonna take me in some jail or someplace, but uh, someday you're gonna get punished the way you treat the Japanese people in the camp. You're gonna be a bigger jail than I am, I told him. <laughs> and he was a raging man. <laughs> As it turned out, Harry was returned to Manzanar briefly. But over the next year, he got sent to seven different prisons in three different states. These included the Moab Isolation Center in Utah and the Loop Isolation Center in Arizona. These were basically gulags. Eric Muller says the War Relocation Authority, or WRA, had created these separate camps to isolate Japanese Americans they considered troublemakers. These were lawless places in which people were confined much more rigorously and under much closer surveillance and under worse living conditions than any of the other official 10 camps and were really kind of kept there against their will without any plausible legal justification. Over the year that Harry Ueno was moved from one prison to the next, he was never charged with a crime. The WRA was responsible for running the 10 incarceration camps, by the end of 1942, it had come up with a surprising new policy for managing them. Officials wanted to find ways to move the incarcerees out as quickly as possible, just not back to the West Coast. They did not want these camps to turn into permanent settlements. They wanted these to be temporary way stations along the way towards uh, lives dispersed across the country in the interior. At the same time, the War Department decided to create a Japanese-American combat unit. 
so it joined forces with the WRA to start clearing inmates for release from camp. These government organizations knew they had to be able to attest to the loyalty of every person of Japanese ancestry they let out. After all, they had forcibly removed all of them from the West Coast because, they said, you couldn't tell who might be a traitor. So now, lo and behold, it turns out they do feel that they can figure out who is loyal and who is disloyal. And the way they decide to do that is with this absolutely blundering questionnaire. We didn't know the purpose really behind the questionnaire. Aiko Herzig Yoshinaga was a young newlywed imprisoned at Manzanar when the so-called loyalty questionnaire came out. Was it going to be used to segregate us? Was it going to be used as instrument to repatriate or expatriate members of the family? The questionnaire was a four-page form. All adults in camp had to fill it out. Most of the questions seemed straightforward. People were asked about their hobbies, what magazines they read, their religious background. But tacked on were two questions that wound up splintering the community and shattering families. Question 27. Are you willing to serve in the armed forces of the United States on combat duty wherever ordered? Question 28. Will you swear unqualified allegiance to the United States of America and faithfully defend the United States from any or all attack by foreign or domestic forces, and forswear any form of allegiance or obedience to the Japanese emperor or any other foreign government, power, or organization. These two questions brought to the surface a year's worth of insecurity and anger and confusion and rage because... They seemed like traps. Frank Emmy was incarcerated at Heart Mountain when he received the questionnaire. He had a wife and a young daughter. When he came to question 27, asking if he would serve in the armed forces, he was astonished. I thought it was a very uh, stupid and uh, arrogant question to uh, ask us after we were thrown out of our homes and put into these concentration camps without even uh, a word about our citizenship rights or civil rights or constitutional rights being restored. And question 28 just made no sense to him. As a citizen of the U.S., Frank had never had an allegiance to Japan. How could he forswear it now? The question was even trickier for his parents' generation, the Issei. Federal law at the time barred immigrants like them from becoming U.S. citizens. For our parents to forswear allegiance to Japan, that would have left them without a country. They'd have become stateless persons. The loyalty questionnaire created so many divisions. Barbara Takei is an expert on the segregation of Japanese Americans at Tula Lake Prison Camp during World War II. Tula Lake is in the northeast tip of California with people fighting, you know, within families to decide how they should answer, whether they needed to give the answers they knew the government wanted to hear or whether they should stand up on principle and use the loyalty questionnaire as a form of protest. Everyone said, well, you got to answer yes, yes. Yukio Kawaratani was 12 years old when his family began intense discussions about how to answer the loyalty questionnaire. They were incarcerated at Poston in Arizona. When Yukio says yes, yes, he means answering yes to both the loyalty questions. His parents had serious doubts about this option. My father, of course, was so upset about what had happened to us. You know, he had lost the farm and everything, and here and now his whole family was in camp, so he was pretty bitter. Yukio was one of ten siblings. Three of his brothers were already serving in the U.S. Army. Two others living in camp were of draft age. Yukio's parents worried that by answering yes, yes, the family would be split up even more. It was actually my mother who said, look, I got three sons in the U.S. Army who, you know, who are in harm's way, and then I may have two more, so let's declare no-no, and maybe then they'll be spared, and also we'll keep the family together. In the long run, Yukio's family would be torn apart by their experience in camp. But in the short run, they had become so-called no-nos, or disloyals, 
Nonos were incarcerees who answered no to questions 27 and 28, or refused to answer the questions. Or they answered it in an equivocal way. Eric Muller. Saying, yes, I'll be loyal, but then, then they would scribble into the margin, you know, if you give us our rights back. There were about 78,000 adults in the camps who were required to fill out the loyalty questionnaire. About 12,000 of them became no-nos. That's roughly one-sixth of the population. Some people said, oh, you know, you're disloyal troublemakers, and you, you make the Japanese look bad. But most friends and relatives were more concerned, what's going to happen to you? That was a good question. None of this is what the War Relocation Authority expected. It thought incarcerees would jump at the chance to declare their loyalty to America and get out of camp. It ended up having almost the opposite effect. And now the government had an even bigger problem on their hands because now the whole country was watching and all of a sudden uh, the WRA had to admit that they had literally thousands of people in the camps who had indicated that they were not loyal to the United States. And that posed a very big problem. WRA officials came up with a plan. They would take the disloyals and segregate them in one camp, Tula Lake in California. There were um, 18,000 people segregated to Tule Lake. Barbara Takei has written extensively about Tule Lake. At one time, her mother was imprisoned there. Even before segregation, Tule Lake was a camp where there was a lot of protest. You know, there were strikes, and people were very vocal about expressing their feelings of injustice. So uh, once segregation happened, it became the place where all of the organizers and the most outspoken and the most disaffected and the angry were the ones who were segregated to Tule Lake. And so, of course, it made Tule Lake kind of a, a cauldron of dissatisfaction and protest. Tule Lake authorities could be rough on protesters, even before the segregation started. Jim Tanimoto was living in block number 42 when the loyalty questionnaire came out. More than 30 people on his block refused to sign it, including Jim. My reason for not signing was I was a prisoner. Jim was 19 years old. He says it was hard for him and his neighbors to even take the questionnaire seriously. We sort of laughed it off and said, you know, here we are, American citizens. And uh, they uprooted us. So they did things that they're not supposed to do. So we just refused to sign, period. Camp authorities decided to make an example of Jim and his fellow resistors. One evening after dinner, uh, our block was surrounded by military police. They had rifles with bayonets on them. And the soldiers said, get over there, get over there, as we came out of the mess hall after dinner. Jim and his peers were loaded onto trucks and taken to a jail in Oregon. After six days, they were moved again. This time, they went to a government camp that was run like a high-security prison. We couldn't do anything without permission or without a guard. To go to the bathroom or go to the latrine, you had to have a guard. The soldier would take you right to the door. You would go in and do whatever you had to do. And if you didn't come out in a given amount of time, what the guy would say, you guys been in there too damn long. Get out of here. Jim and the other inmates began mimicking the guards. We didn't realize this is serious. We shouldn't take it as a joke. We were still thinking, you know, this can't happen to us. But it was happening, and it would only get worse. Back in Wyoming, Mitz Koshiyama was put on trial with 62 other draft resistors from Heart Mountain. The first day we went to trial, the judge called us Jap boys. So when we came back, a lot of the other guys in our group said, you know something, things don't look too good. Why would the judge call us Jap boys? This shows that he's very prejudiced. And they were right. In June 1944, Mitz and his co-defendants were found guilty of draft evasion. They were sentenced to three years in federal prison. Of all the incarceration camps, 
Hart Mountain and Polston had the two most organized draft resistance movements, historian Eric Moeller. And those movements really were quite articulate about their reasons for, for not complying. You know, their arguments were relatively straightforward. At Hart Mountain, everybody who, who resisted the draft had answered yes to the loyalty questions. But their position was, we have not been treated as citizens. We will be willing to shoulder the great burden of military service that falls on citizens if you'll treat us like citizens. If you'll give us our rights back and our families' rights back, we will be happy to go off and serve in the army. But until then, we're not going to serve. The movement at Hart Mountain was led by the Fair Play Committee. The committee formed after the loyalty questionnaire came out. One fellow walked around camp explaining to people their constitutional rights. He called himself the Fair Play Committee of One. But the committee quickly expanded. Once the draft was announced, the organizers got busy. We were holding meetings every night in various blocks. Frank Emmy was one of the committee leaders. Uh, we used to have a full house at these uh, meetings that we held in the mess halls. Mess halls had held three, four hundred people, and I guess uh, many times we had standing room only. Many people supported the Fair Play Committee, but the group also faced intense opposition, both inside and outside camp. One big opponent, the Japanese American Citizens League. They thought it was a disaster. In a sense, this was sort of their worst, the JACL's worst fear being realized, that in this moment when, um, you know, scrutiny was being placed on the Japanese-American community, that instead of doing what the JACL wanted, which was to grab the American flag and run off onto a battlefield, that there would be young men who would resist um, and who would be understood as resisting out of disloyalty, no matter what they said, you know, no matter how much they claimed to be resisting in a patriotic way on their constitutional rights, that they would be seen as traitors. Frank Emmy says the JACL actually helped spread the idea that the draft resistors were traitors. The Pacific Citizen is the newspaper put out by the Japanese American Citizens League. It's like their house organ. And that paper, they editorialized, calling us saboteurs and uh, disloyal, seditionists, etc. They really uh, vilified us. In Hart Mountain, draft resistors got the same rap from the camp newspaper, the Hart Mountain Sentinel. They call us provocateurs, uh, we're dim-witted, uh, what the Fair Play Committee was doing. After one of these editorials, Frank wrote a rebuttal letter that was so long the paper had to publish it in two issues. The fact was, Frank Emmy was never eligible for the draft. He was the father of two children. At the time, that disqualified him. But he still got punished for leading the fight against the draft at Hart Mountain. He and several Fair Play Committee leaders were sentenced to four years in federal prison for counseling others to evade the draft. Well, we felt, at least I felt so strongly about the injustice of it that uh, I just had to do something. It was just spontaneous. In 1945, the convictions of the Fair Play Committee leaders were overturned. Nearly 300 Japanese-American incarcerees were put on trial for resisting the draft. Except for the Tula Lake group, they were all convicted of the same federal crime, refusing to report for induction. Their sentences varied widely. In Arizona, the post and draft resistors were given a one-penny fine. In Idaho, the Minidoka resistors were sentenced to more than three years in federal prison. Two years after the war, President Harry S. Truman pardoned all the Japanese-American draft resistors, but they weren't necessarily freed from the judgment of their own community. For Japanese-Americans who opposed the draft or who protested in camp, their actions were often seen as a badge of dishonor. Barbara Takei says that the real story of Tule Lake is the story of Japanese-Americans protesting the injustice of wartime incarceration. The tragedy, she says, is that this history has been hidden and distorted. For most of the past 70 years, the stories of the people who protested have been treated like our dirty linen. 
Our community has not embraced the stories of protest. And instead, the people who protested have been marginalized. The people who protested uh, were not pro-Japan fanatics. They were not disloyal. They were people who did a very American thing, which was to protest injustice. And they were our early civil rights heroes. As World War II began to end, it was clear that all 10 incarceration camps would close. Many inmates had already left the camps for school or jobs in other parts of the country, or to go to war. But what would happen to all the people left behind? Having lost their homes, their jobs, their businesses, where exactly should they go? For some people, resettling after camp would prove even harder than being in camp. We had no place to stay, and so my father got an army squad tent, and he put it up in the backyard of our former landlord, right across the street from where we used to live. Boy, I'm telling you, uh, we lived in that tent. I don't know how we survived. That's in the final installment of our series, Order 9066. Order 9066 is produced by Kate Ellis and me, Stephen Smith. Our narrator is Saab Shimono. The editors are Chris Julin and Mary Beth Kirshner. The theme music is by Genji Saraisi. The production team includes Alex Baumhart, Hannah Murayama, Emerald O'Brien, Andy Cruz, Corey Schreppel, Veronica Rodriguez, Michael Osborne, and Johnny Vince Evans. This series is a collaboration with the National Museum of American History. The team there includes Jennifer Jones, Noriko Sanafuji, and Valeska Hilbig. Special thanks to Densho, the Japanese American Legacy Project. Support for Order 9066 comes from the Terasaki Family Foundation, the Henry R. Luce Foundation, the Wallace Alexander Gerbodi Foundation, the Ishiyama Family Foundation, and Penelope Shala. You can hear this entire documentary series at our website, apmreports.org. While you're there, you can see photos from the incarceration and find links to additional resources. That includes the Smithsonian's online exhibition, Writing a Wrong. You can also learn about our terminology, like why we use the word incarceration instead of internment. That's at apmreports.org. Thanks for listening. This is APM, American Public Media.